hey, why don't you grab a Bible, open up to the book of Revelation today, chapter 2. Starting a new seven-week series today entitled Letters to the Church. And this is coming from Revelation chapters 2 and Revelation chapter 3. Now, I've been wanting to preach these two chapters, I'm going to be honest, for a number of years. Um, I've preached through Revelation chapter 4 all the way to the end when I did an end times um, study of Revelation. But I've never preached these two chapters. And um, I've always wanted to and never felt like I, I had, a, had an opportunity to do it until this year. Um, when I put my preaching calendar together and when I came to the end of the Hope That Heals series... I realized from the end of that until I go on vacation in July, I had seven weeks. And I'm like, okay, well, how can I fill those seven weeks? And then I started looking, and I'm like, hey, there's seven messages in these two chapters. That fits perfectly. So, so I, I'm like, I finally have the opportunity to preach these two chapters. And so um, I want to preach these two chapters because these were letters written to churches. And I thought, hey, what can we learn? What can we know from these letters? And so that's what I want us to look at, these letters to the church, what we can know. And so with that, let me pray, and, and, and we're going to dive in, and we're going to see what God has for us. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's truth. And, Jesus, we thank you that you have spoken to us. And we pray now, open the eyes of our hearts, Holy Spirit, to hear um, what these uh, letters have to say and what we can know from them. And so I pray, Father, that you would just uh, work in our hearts and our minds. I pray that you would inform the mind and change it. I pray that you would stir the heart, convict it. And I pray that you would challenge the will um, in these um, upcoming messages. And so we just thank you, Father, and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, now, I am actually going to start in chapter 2, verse 8, not chapter 2, verse 1. Because last week when we announced that we were going to be opening up, um, it, it, it kind of changed um, some of the things that we're going to be doing. Because on June 6th, uh, we are going to do a ministry fair out in the foyer. And so I wanted to preach one of these, one of these letters on that particular day, um, which is actually verses 1 through 8. So I'm going to come back to verses 1 through 8 in a couple weeks. So I'm going to start in verse 8. And so if you would, let me read starting in verse 8. And then we're going to look at what we can learn today and what we need to know. So Revelation chapter 2, starting with verse 8, it says this. It says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation, your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are, a, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit of the, says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. All right, so... Let's, let's get a little context here before I dive into point number one. Revelation was written by the Apostle John. John was one of Jesus' 12 apostles. Um, when you read the book of John, this is him. When you read the, the books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, this is him. 
All right. Now, John is writing. Um, he, he, what he's doing is he's experiencing a vision that he is given by Christ. He's, he's, he's having this vision of, in chapter one of, of Jesus. And then starting in chapter four, he actually has a vision of heaven. He has a vision of the what is going to be called the tribulation period, um, the event of the end times. He has a vision of the, 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 the judgment of God. So he has this vision. Um, but here in chapters two and three, he is given um, letters, um, a, a, a message for seven different churches. Okay. And these churches are actually located in what we know as modern-day Turkey, all right? And, and in John's time, he was writing to these churches in what was called Asia Minor. Now, John is writing this letter, this, this revelation, while he was on, in exile on a small little island off the coast of Turkey called Patmos. And Patmos was actually a penal colony for the Roman Empire. It wasn't like he was like, hey, this is a nice little island. I've got my little tiki hut. And no, he was actually on a penal colony because he was preaching the word and the Romans cast him away. And so he's on this island and he is having this revelation. And so in chapters two and three, he's writing to seven different churches. Okay. And so. I want us to look at what can we know from these letters. Now, here's the thing. Even though these letters were specifically written to these churches 2,000 years ago, how many of you know there's still truth in there for us today? All right? That's what we want to do. We're not going to read it and go, oh, well, he's talking to that church. That all applies. There is still stuff in there that is very applicable for us in all these churches. And so... Let's look at what we need to know, what we can know from the first church, the church in Smyrna. And here's the first thing. Write this down. We need to know Jesus is speaking. We need to know Jesus is speaking. And so there in verse 8, it says, And to the angel of the church of Smyrna. Let me begin there. Let's start with this church called Smyrna and, or in the city called Smyrna. Outside of this verse right here, there is no other mention of this church in the New Testament. Nowhere. Okay? And, and so what we can conclude, though, is Paul, when he was on his missionary journey um, through Asia Minor, and, and in Asia Minor, one of the churches that we're going to see was Ephesus. And we know that church because of the book of Ephesians. All right? This church in Smyrna was just about 30 miles north of Ephesus, all right, in, in Asia Minor, and even though we don't know anything about it, Paul must have went into that, church, into that city, and he started proclaiming the gospel, preaching, and guess what he did? He started a church. Even though it's not mentioned in the New Testament, how many of you know it doesn't make it insignificant, but Jesus, for some reason, said, I need to write a letter to this church, okay? And so... This, this city called Smyrna was a, a seaport village on the, the west side of modern-day Turkey. And it, it probably was somewhere about 100 to 150,000 people. It was known for its medicine and um, um, engineering. It was also very well known for its um, worship of false gods and for Roman emperor worship. 
And, and so here you have a church in the middle of all this, okay? And so here it says, to the angel of this church. Now that word angel, um, kind of some debate on this. It, 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 could be, it could have been a literal angel that Jesus was saying, John, get this to, you know, but I'm sitting there going, why does Jesus have to talk to John and then John give it to an angel? I mean, the angels are already in heaven. Couldn't Jesus have said, hey, angel, go? I think it's actually what it, the, the, when you translate the word angel in Greek, it means messenger. And, and I think the, the messenger was um, the, the leadership of the church elders and pastors and and so it was it was jesus communicating to john here's what i need to say get it to the messenger and the messenger would have been like the pastor of the church communicating what has been said so but here's the way i look at it angel or pastor is it about the messenger or the one giving the message the one giving the message, okay? It's not about the messenger. And that's why sometimes when I read um, commentaries, I chuckle at them. Because I'm like, man, you all are debating over really minor stuff here. I mean, these guys are debating. It's an angel. No, it's not. I'm like, it's not about the messenger. It's about the one giving the message. And, and that's what we see here. And so it says, to the, you know, and, and to the angel of the church of Smyrna, write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Those last few words there, who is that describing? It's describing Christ. That's how I came to this first point. Jesus is speaking here. And he's like, here, John, here's what you first need to say. I'm the first and the last. I died and I came back to life. Make that the blanket statement right off the bat. Okay? That's what they need to hear. They need to know who's speaking here. Okay? He's like, here's what needs to be said. John, I'm saying it to you. Now, John, you've got to communicate to the church. They need to hear it. They need to know it. Okay? When I thought about this, I thought about an old commercial. Those of you who grew up in the 70s, um, the 80s, you, you'll know this. Those of you who have never seen these commercials, you're going to look at me like a cow staring at a new gate. Um, how many of you remember commercials by a company called E.F. Hutton? Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, raise your hand if you have no idea what I'm talking about, please. Some of you are like, I have no idea who E.F. Hutton was. E.F. Hutton was a brokerage company, okay? So they would have these um, commercials with people talking about stocks and, and where they invest. And, and one guy's like, well, my brokerage company is doing this. And then another person was like, well, my company um, is E.F. Hutton. And when E.F. Hutton, here's what they say. And at that moment, when they say, here's what E.F. Hutton says, everybody goes, stops. They stop what they're doing. They stop everything. And the people lean in to hear. What does E.F. Hutton have to say? And then when, after a few seconds, just a voice comes across the commercial. When E.F. Hutton speaks, everybody listens. When Jesus speaks, guess who has to listen? The church. Okay? I mean, Jesus is speaking here. And he, when he speaks, it needs to be like it grabs our attention and we stop. And we lean in and we listen. What is Jesus saying to us? 
And so we need to know Jesus is speaking here. And if we realize Jesus is the one speaking here, we need to tune in. We need to hear. We need to listen. And we need to know here's what Jesus is saying. So that's the first thing we need to know is that Jesus is speaking. Here's the second thing we need to know. Jesus is eternal God. So not only is he speaking, but he describes himself here. And right there, he, the first thing he says about himself, the words of the first and last. The words of the first and last. If you know your Greek alphabet, um, this is also the alpha and the omega. Okay, The first letter of the Greek alphabet, the last letter of the Greek alphabet. And Jesus is, is putting himself in this category of being the first and the last. Now, when he says that, when he, when he says, I am the first and the last, as first, he's saying, I have existed for all time. And when he says, and I am the last, he says, I will live forevermore. So you, he's infinite. You, you, cannot, you cannot put him at a beginning, and you cannot put him at an end. He is the first and the last. He will be forever. But here's the other thing about him saying that is he has just equated himself to being who? God. Okay? He is saying, I am the first and the last. That means I am God. Now, how do I know that? Well, here's how I know that. In the book of Isaiah... Chapter 41, verse 4, Isaiah is writing to the nation of Israel, and God is communicating this through Isaiah. And God says this, he says, I am the Lord, and I am the first, and I am the last. I am he. Now, in that verse, the word Lord is capitalized. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And when I was going through the book of Exodus, and I said, whenever you see the word LORD in all caps, what, is that word, what does that mean? Yahweh. Okay? It's the personal name of God. It is the I am. It is saying, so in, in Isaiah, when, when, when Yahweh, the LORD, is speaking to Isaiah, it is the one true eternal God. It is the great I am. He is speaking to Isaiah. And then also in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6, it says, Thus says the Lord, all capital letters, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord, all capital letters, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no other God besides me. And so again, Isaiah is communicating to the nation of Israel, your God, the Lord, Yahweh, I am is the one true God, and there is no other God besides him. But yet Jesus says, oh, I am the first and the last. So what Jesus is saying is just as Yahweh communicated that he was the first and the last, so am I, because I am he. I am God. You see, this is what the Trinity is, okay? The Trinity is one God in three distinct persons, okay? You got one God, but God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. 
I, I illustrated this once with an egg, okay? If you take an egg and, and you have an egg in your hand, it's one egg, right? But if you were to take that egg and you break the shell, and th those of you who are, you know, um, cholesterol um, conscious or, or, or wanting to not um, eat a lot of calories, what will you do? Separate the yolk from the whites. So you've got a shell, a white, and a yolk. Now let me ask you, is the, the white any less an egg? No, it's an egg white. Is the yolk any less an egg? No, it's an egg yolk. And the shell, is it any less of an egg? Nope, it's an egg shell. One egg, but three distinct parts but all an egg. So it is with the Trinity. You have one God, but three distinct parts. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, but all God. And so that's what makes Jesus so distinct above any other religious leader, is no other religious leader can ever say, oh, I'm God. This is what got Jesus killed because when he declared when he was alive and he declares himself as God the religious leaders went bonkers they're like that's blasphemy because there's only one true God and you're not him because God doesn't live in flesh you see that's what they didn't understand he was fully God but fully man God in the flesh and Jesus is declaring to the church in Smyrna, I am God. I am still the one true God. And that's what makes Jesus distinct. I mean, he, he, he is God in the flesh. You see, he, and, and here's what makes Jesus really so different from any other um, religious prophet. Jesus just wasn't a prophet speaking about God. You see, that's, that's actually what the Muslims teach, that, that you have the prophet Muhammad, and Jesus was nothing more than a prophet, and he spoke about God. He was not God. But you see, that's what makes Jesus distinctly different. Is not, he wasn't just a prophet speaking about God. He was a man who was God in the flesh, speaking as God the Son. All right, he wasn't just talking about God. He wasn't just making a references about God. He was declaring himself as God. And that's what makes him so distinct. And when he says, I am the first and the last, he is setting himself up distinct, apart from everything, with absolute authority above anyone. You see, Jesus is declaring, because I am the first and I am the last, I transcend time. I transcend space. I transcend creation. Because I am above it all. Why? Because I am God. And so he says, I am the first and the last. And we need to know that. We need to know Jesus isn't just... Well, he, I mean, I think some Christians kind of still struggle with, well, I think Jesus was God, but how can he be God in the, because he was completely God, completely man. Don't try to figure it out. 
you will have a brain freeze and you'll blow a fuse. That I'm telling you, the Trinity stuff is so far above you and me. We've got to just trust that when Jesus says, oh, by the way, I am the first and the last comparing himself as God, we just got to sit back and go, okay. If Jesus says it, then I'm going to believe it, that he was God and is God. But not only that. And so, so Jesus is declaring and he's telling us, here's what you need to know. That I'm speaking, that I'm the eternal God. And then here's the third thing. We need to know that Jesus has power over sin and death. Now, here's where the paradox comes in. When he declares, I'm the first and the last, he is revealing his deity. But now when he declares and says, who died and came to life, he's revealing what? His humanity. Okay? In one breath, he's like, I'm God. But in the next breath, he says, oh, by the way, I died. How can God die? Because God in the flesh. God, you see, that's the thing. Jesus transcends time. He transcends space. He transcends everything. But yet in a moment, as God the Son, he steps into space. He steps into time. He clothes himself in flesh, and he becomes man. Again, how do, how do we figure that out? Everybody say, can't. You can't figure it out. Okay, don't even try to pretend to figure it out again. Step back and go. I don't know how that works, but if, if but God's God and, and Jesus is the son of God. He's God, the son. And so if the son, the God, the son can step out of and step into time, I'll believe it. And that's what he did. He stepped into time, stepped into space and he took on flesh, he became man, became one of us, understood what it meant to be tempted in every way, but was without sin for one sole purpose, to become a sacrifice, to become a sacrifice for sin so that way he, through his death and his resurrection, he cripples the power of sin and death. You see, Hebrews Chapter 2, verse 14 says this. It says that through his death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death. And that is the devil. You see, through Jesus' death, he rendered powerless the power of death. He renders powerless the power of sin. Because here's the thing. You understand that before you know Christ the Savior, guess what you are in bondage to? Sin. You're in slavery to sin. And because you are in slavery to sin, guess what you are bound for? Death. Eternal death. And so Jesus comes and he makes a way. Jesus, the eternal one, the, the eternal God, God the Son, steps out of time, or steps into time, steps into space, becomes a man and sacrifices himself on a cross. And through his death, he shows that he has victory over death. But here's the thing you and I need to see. 
That's why it says, I died. But what else does it say? And came back to life. How many of you know, um, we are so grateful and thankful that Jesus died on the cross. Okay? But here's the thing. Death and life go hand in hand. You don't have life if Jesus didn't come back to life. Because here's the thing. Every so-called um, prophet of God who claimed to be deity or, or whatever, even the, the emperors of Rome claimed to be deity. The, the emperors of China and, and Japan way back claimed to be deity. But here's the thing. When they died, guess where they laid? In the ground. And their bodies decayed. Their bodies were eaten by worms. Their bodies continued to be in that grave. But not Jesus. You see, if it wasn't for I came back to life, we would be in a predicament. Because if Jesus simply died, guess where he would be? In the grave. His body still laying in the tomb. But that's not what happened. He dies, and three days later, his eyes open up, and he rises from the dead. He comes back to life. Now, why is that so important for you and I to know? Why, why do we need to know, yeah, Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the grave. When we celebrate Easter, we're like, oh, we're, we're, we're happy that, hey, we're celebrating the risen Savior. Why do you need to know that, though? Why is the life of Christ so important to know? Because the book of John chapter 11 tells us, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he's not talking physical death. You're still going to die physically because that's the curse. But Jesus says, when he says, when you believe in me, even though you die physically, you will live spiritually. You see... Because Jesus lives, you live. Because Jesus rose from the dead, guess what you're going to do? Rise from the dead one day. This body is. Because you have faith in Christ. Because when you come to the place of putting your faith in Christ and him alone for the salvation and the forgiveness of your sin, you are now in him. You're clothed in him. You've been buried with him. When you are baptized, you're buried with him but raised to life. And that is, that is symbolic of the, 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 the realization that you are going to die physically and you're going to be laid in the ground, but you will rise spiritually and live forever and never die again. When we get to the end of Revelation, we're going to see that there is a second death. Or not the end of Revelation, but the end of our text here. We're going to see there is a second death. And there are people who are living now who will also die later. And so Jesus is saying, listen, because of what I did, I died, I rose, now you have life in me. That's why it's so important to know that Jesus has power over sin and death. Here's the fourth thing. Jesus knows exactly what you're going through. Jesus knows exactly what you're going through. 
Look at verse 9 now. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not. So this church was going through some very difficult, serious trials, okay? And, and Jesus gives us right here in verse 9 three avenues that their trials were coming from. One, he says, I know your tribulation. That tri- the word tribulation actually means to be crushed. He's like, I know you're being crushed right now. And here's where the tribulation came from. Remember what I said that um, Smyrna was a, a, a city known for its worship. It's, it's worship of false gods and it's emperor worship. Now, what do I mean by emperor worship? The emperors of Rome. And at this time, when, when John would have been writing Revelation, Nero was the, 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 the emperor. And these emperors thought they were gods. And so they would make declarations. They would make a declaration for all people to hail them as as Lord. And and so you would have people in Smyrna would, 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 would start to chant, Caesar is Lord. How many of you know that's a problem for a Christian? Because you have these people who believe in one Lord. And who would that Lord be? Jesus Christ. So now they have a conflict. They're like, well, Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my Savior. I can't call you Lord because if I do that, I'm denouncing my real Lord. So no, I can't do that. So guess what would happen to these people? They weren't like, oh, okay, don't worry about it. Go on and do your... No, 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 no. Back then, if you did not hail Caesar as Lord they would take you and arrest you and take you back to Rome. And guess what would happen to you in Rome? During that time, there were things called gladiator games or just games and not football. It was these Christians would be placed in the arena and they would take animal skins and put them around the people and then release wild dogs on them and be torn apart or lions wild animals, and let these Christians be torn apart. If they didn't want to do that, um, they would crucify them. Just crucify them, line them along the streets. If that wasn't enough, how about we um, just burn you to the stake? If that wasn't enough, how about this? How about if we cover you in oil, light you on fire, and use you as a human torch? You see, Nero used burning Christians to light up his gardens. You see, this was the tribulation these people were facing. But Jesus also says, he goes, I know your poverty. They were poor. And I'm not talking just like, well, we're just kind of having a bad month this week. (laughs) That's a good one. Now, if anybody's looking at me, why is Jim laughing? What's that up? You can't have a month and a week, okay? They were ha- it's not like they were saying, we're just having a bad month and, you know, the budget's shot. No, um, here's what happened to these Christians. Um, their, their families would disown them. Their friends would disown them. If they were Jewish Christians, they were disowned by the synagogue. Their jobs would be lost. And they would have nothing. 
Nobody supported him. Nobody helped them. And that's why the church was so united back then, because the church took care of them. That's why Paul would always send help from other churches to go help the believers in Jerusalem at different times, because Christians lost everything. And it's up to Christians to take care of one another. These people would have been very poor. And so Jesus is like, I know your tribulation, I know your poverty. But he also says, he goes, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not. So here's what's going on there. Jesus is like, you who are Jewish Christians, they've been kicked out of the synagogue. And now you have other Jews living in Smyrna looking at these so-called Christian Jews and they're slandering them. They hate them. They're speaking falsely against them. And Jesus is like, I see this and I know what's going on. But we also need to know that that they're having these problems. But here's three encouragements within that text. First one is this. Jesus says, I know. I know your tribulation. I see it. I care for you. Jesus isn't checked out. He's not aloof. He's not like sleeping behind the wheel. He knows it. He cares for them. And he is, like, uh, like we talked about last week, he isn't abandoning them. He isn't forsaking them. He knows what's going on. Now, here's a question I think sometimes we can have when we hear that or we read that. Well, if Jesus knows my suffering, if he knows my tribulation and he cares for me, why doesn't he do something about it? Why doesn't he relieve this from me? I think two reasons. The first one is actually found in verse 10. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Can I stop there for a second? First, he says, I know your tribulation. They're already going through tribulation. But now Jesus says, don't fear for what you are what? About to suffer. So guess what's going on? More suffering on top of suffering. I thought about that this week, and Paul and I talked about this, and I'm telling you, this flies right in the face of so much junk that is being taught and written about by so many preachers of today. Preachers saying, no, 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 God's got, he wants so much good for you and prosperity for you. He wants healing for you. He wants to have you be- your best life right now. He wants everything good for you. And they take, they take problems in your life, nothing more than a blip on the radar. Hey, if you're suffering right now, it's just a blip. Because, man, better days are coming. That, that, that promotion work is coming. Everything good is coming. But Smyrna did not get the memo. They're suffering. They're going through tribulation. And then Jesus says, oh, by the way, I know your tribulation, but don't fear about the suffering. That does also, it's coming again. It's like, okay, you got hit by the first wave. You come up for some air and wham, the other wave hits. Here's these people going through it. But look at what it says, though. He says, do not fear about what you are to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be What's that word? Tested. Ugh. We don't like that. Why does God test us? Why does Jesus say, I know your suffering, I know your tribulation, and this is happening to you so you can be tested? 
How many of you know um, pressure reveals things in you? Okay? How many, it's, it's not hard to be a Christian when it's easy in life. How many of you know it gets real hard to be a Christian when you're suffering? And Jesus is wanting to know, as Scripture tells us, is your faith genuine? Is it real? Jesus talks about, in the book of Matthew chapter 13, he's like, the, he's like there are people who hear the word of God, receive the word of God, and they, 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 they hold out for a while until tribulation and persecution come. And then guess what they do? Jump ship. There are Christians who, oh, I believe in Jesus, and, and I love Jesus, until they're hit with a storm. And then they're like, oh, you know what, I'm out of here. Because they don't want to go through it. And Jesus says it. He's like, here's the way people are. As soon as persecution and trouble come and tribulation, they're done. That's why we're tested. How strong is your faith going to be in the middle of the storm, in the middle of the trial, the tribulation and the suffering? But here's the other reason why I think that Jesus knows our tribulation, he knows our suffering, but allows it to continue. And I think it's this. I wonder if Jesus wants us to hate this life so much that we don't love this life, but we can't wait for the next. Because think about it. If, if, if I'm getting everything so good in this life, I'm, I'm, I'm prosperous and, and I have so much that this world can give me. Where's my longing for the afterlife at? I'm not looking heavenward. I'm looking horizontal. I'm looking at what more can I get from this world? What more can I get? How much more money can I have? How much more fun things can I? And we're always looking at this. Gets us off. And so I don't know about you, but there are times when, when I just go, oh, man, Jesus, bring the rapture. Just already, let's go. See, that's why the apostle Paul, when he's in prison, he's like, man, while I'm here, I'll bear fruit for Christ. But man, am I ready to get out of here. But listen, if I'm not being tried and, 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 and tribulation and persecuted, but if I just have so much good and, and I don't long for that. I'm not hungering for the eternal life with Christ. And I believe that's probably why a reason Jesus like, I know you're suffering, but I got to let it continue because I want you to hunger for me and hunger for what's coming and not hunger and love this world. But also look at the poverty thing. He says, you're po he says I know you're poverty, but you're rich. How can you be poor and be rich? This is actually, we're going to see in a few weeks on the church of Laodicea, the complete opposite. You see, he's trying to tell these people, I know you're very poor now. But oh, you have a richness that, that, that you can't even define right now. You see, they were poor physically, but they were rich spiritually. Okay? How many of you know Jesus... Jesus' way of thinking and his talking is always backwards to ours. Or I should say, is right and we're backward to him. Because we think, hey, I'm rich physically. I've got it all. But Jesus is like, no, 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 no. 
you're poor, but if you have the spiritual riches, you've got it all. And the spiritual riches he's talking about is the fact that, man, he's like, hey, you know what? Um, You're saved. You know grace and you have mercy. You have righteousness. You have holiness. This church, like I said, they would have had a, a unity with one another, a fellowship, a community that would have been so valuable. And Jesus is like, you are rich beyond belief. And then he's also talking about them being slandered. And I love how Jesus doesn't mince words here. He says, those Jews who are slandering you, they're not really Jews. And he goes, they're the synagogue of Satan. I just love that. He's just like, don't even worry about them because they belong to their father, Satan. You know, maybe you're going through it. And you're, you're, you're experiencing the tribulation, the suffering. And I want you to know, Christ knows your suffering. He knows it. He hasn't checked out on you. He hasn't abandoned you. He hasn't forsaken you. He may not be delivering you out of it, but he knows you're in it. And there's a purpose there. And that purpose may be testing you. That purpose may be trying to refine you, to get your focus off the world and onto him, to hunger more for him and not this world. There may be reasons there that you and I may not understand. Maybe you look at your finances and you're like, man, how come I can never catch a break? How come it just seems like everybody else around me has so much? How come it seems like I look at these non-Christians and, wow, why do they get to have so much of this world? Man, we're just barely making it by. Listen, listen, listen. If you know Jesus, you've got everything. Because Jesus says in the book of Mark, he says, man, you can gain the whole world and still forfeit your soul. Because here's why. There are people... From ages past till now until Jesus comes back. People who have everything the world can throw at them. They are, by all rights, rich on the outside. But spiritually speaking, bankrupt. Because here's the thing. This life is ending. And your riches do not go with you. And if you don't know the true riches, which is Jesus Christ and everything that comes with him, man, you have nothing. But if you have Christ, you may be poor now and you may not have a lot of the enjoyments. You may not have a lot of the toys and and the fancy houses and the cars. But listen to me. If you have Christ, you've got an inheritance kept up in heaven waiting for you. And you're going to have so many more riches in then, which is going to matter than now. And even I think of the last one, the slandering stuff. Maybe you've been trying to be an example of Christ at your job. You've been trying to witness to people, man, people hate you. You've had family members hate you. You've had friends depart from you. You've got people at work who mock you, tease you, make fun of you, call you names because you're trying to stand for Christ in your workplace, trying to stand for Christ in your ungodly family, trying to stand for Christ, and man, people are just waylaying you. Jesus' words still fit there. Don't stress over it. They belong to their father, to Satan for right now, because you're being a tool that God is using to speak into their life. And one day you need to believe, man, I'm going to trust that this person who is slandering me now for my faith will come to know Christ through my faith. And you got to trust in that. You see, God knows 
Christ knows everything you're going through. And then lastly, the last thing you need to know is this. Jesus will reward those who remain faithful to the end. He will remain faithful to those all the way to the end. He will reward them. So again, in verse 10, when he says, do not fear about your suffering, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested for 10 days. You will have tribulation. That verse tells me two things. Number one, uh, Jesus has control over the devil. Okay? Just like Job, all right? Job comes to God and he says, hey, 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 let me go after this guy. And God, it's weird to think, but God's like, okay, go ahead. And even here, Jesus is allowing Satan to come against this church. And you, again, you can ask him, why would he do that? Why did he do that to Job? Why is he allowing the devil to, to put these people in prison? Which, again, is another tribulation. It's like, okay, you know, tribulation by, you know, beating, eating by wild animals isn't enough, or being poor isn't enough, or, you know, having people slander you enough. Oh, by the way, get thrown in jail. Okay? So, I, I think God really steps back and goes, like he did with Job, go ahead and test them. They're not following. I believe in them. I, I, I believe Christ believes in us. And he allows the enemy to come against us on a spiritual leash. He lets him out so far. He's in control of it. And it's only to... to, 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 to how many of you know the battle is not with... Uh, we're not in the battle. Um, it's between God and, 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 and Satan. We get that, right? We're the pawns. And so the enemy will use us to get to God. And God will work through us to um, show him. This is how good they are. This is how I believe that they are. Their, their faith is strong. Here's the thing. Um, Satan cannot cripple true saving faith. If you know Christ as your Savior, he can't cripple that, no matter what he does to you. And God rewards that. But notice also he says that they're going to be in prison for 10 days. Um, Jesus is in control of your suffering. How long? Ten days, you'll be in prison. How many of you know it could have been ten years? The length of your suffering is in his hands. How long you suffer for whatever you're going through is in his control. Okay? The ultimate question that you and I have got to ask is this. Look at the right, after, the, 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 right at the end of verse 10. He says, be faithful on to death, and I will give you the crown of life. The question that you and I have got to ask is, um, it's, if, I, if I know God's in control of the enemy, if he's in control of my time, can I be faithful with where I'm at? Can I continue to trust God no matter what I'm going through? You see, Jesus says, Here's, you're going through tribulation, you're in poverty, you're being slandered, you're going to be put in prison. Be faithful. Stay in there. Don't quit. Don't walk away. Be faithful. And if you will be faithful until when? To the end of what? Your life. Can you be faithful until you breathe your last breath? Can you be faithful to Christ until your heart beats its last beat? And when your body closes its eyes for the final time, you take your last breath, and this body is laid in the in, into the grave. Couldn't, can you be able to? I, I was faithful. I stayed with it. I hung in there. I didn't walk away. 
I didn't allow what was coming into my life become the source where I said, forget God, and I walked away. Nope. I hung in there. And when I hang in there, I remain faithful. He says, I'll give you the crown of life. The Bible talks about different crowns. Now, whether this is a physical crown or if it's the crown, being crowned with eternal life. Again, it doesn't matter. Man, you are going to be with Christ and he's going to reward you. Why? Because you are faithful. He goes on. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear. But the Spirit says to the churches, can you hear this today? Are you hearing this today? Are you tuning in to what Jesus is saying? And then look at the very last line. The one who conquers, meaning the one who overcomes, continues to be faithful all the way to the end, will not be hurt by the second death. The second death is at the final judgment of God when, the, when it says in Revelation that the, the great and the small, the living and the, the people are going to stand before God at that final judgment, and God is going to look at them, and that's when he's going to say, I never knew you, depart from me. And they will be sentenced to an eternal separation from God in hell. That's the second death. And second death does not mean annihilation. It doesn't mean like uh, cast into oblivion. It means that um, you were alive once, but because you didn't know my son, Jesus Christ, now you will die eternally. Spending eternity in a Christless, godless, separated from him for all eternity in a literal hell. That's the second death. And Jesus is saying those who overcome, those who hang in there, those who don't quit, those who know me, those who stay steadfast, those are the ones who will not be hurt by that. But the ones who don't, the ones who don't, they, they quit on Christ, they, they, they reject Christ, they don't want to do anything for, they just, that's what they'll face. And that should cause a terror in us. Unbelievers are going to be there. People who don't know Christ are going to be at that second death. And that's why we got to continue to be faithful to keep speaking Christ, to keep telling people about Jesus, preaching the gospel, and keep doing what we are doing no matter what we face. Because this world's coming to an end. Your life is coming to an end. And one day you're going to be crowned with the crown of life. Amen? Let's all stand and close.